Step right up, it's nailed, a Halo by Halo, journey through the music of Nine Inch Nails. And I'm Blake. I'm Jessica. And we're your hosts, and how'd you like that new intro music? Man, it's so good. Man, it slaps. <laughs> um, that was a lie. That was a bit of acting, because Jess hasn't even heard it yet. I haven't. I'm and just trying to be supportive. Let's Let's be fully honest. In the time that you're hearing this, I haven't even finalized it, so... I'll get that done before July 11th when this drops. It's almost there. Soon. I hope you. Li- I hope everyone likes it. So yeah, this is now a, f- a podcast about the fragile, right? Yeah. Welcome to our fragile era. Little tulip emoji. Our fragile summer has started. Fragile summer has begun, and that's mm-hmm. what this episode is. The intro to fragile summer and... What it, you know what it is better than I do, but it's the intro to the Fragile Era, right? Mm-hmm. But wow, I mean, we kind of jokingly laughed about, because we had, what was, was it last year Broken Summer? It was, we had Broken August. So oh, well, it's broken still Broken only took up one yeah. month. Yeah, it's still summer. Broken and fixed. So, okay. So now it's Fragile su- Fragile. Yeah. And it was, it was a summer. joke. We'd planned on putting it out a little bit earlier, and then I was like, well, let's wait till it's actually officially summer. And then, I don't know, the world turned to shit in the past couple of months, even more yeah. than it had before. You didn't think, it, and, there, it can always go lower. Never, yeah. never ever say it can't get worse, because it always can. There's oh, always another bottom that's There's lower. always, always a way it can get As worse. As Trent will teach us in this album coming up, it can always, you can always get lower. But I feel like it's very appropriate, because it does feel like everything is just kind of hanging by a thread like everything feels so fragile right now like my sanity Mm. yeah like the civilization itself is fragile and on the brink of collapse at all times it just seems like uh more obvious now i guess Mm -hmm. or more possible maybe and it also seems like we're always stuck in the hole with the piss and the shit yeah that too but enough about sad things this is this is what people have been excitedly awaiting and what we have been excited for and anxious for and building up to Mm -hmm. we're starting fragile era but first are we gonna do nin news yeah okay do it before diving into fragile era let's get our current events out of the way in the nin news network the triple n you've heard me talk she just rolled her goddamn (laughs) eyes on a podcast folks they can't see that. That's just insult me. You've heard me talk about the Triple M. This is the Triple N NIN News Network. That's not going to catch on. If you have a better, someone let me know In a more clever thing. In my outline, I just wrote Nine Inch News. Oh, Nine Inch News. That's better. So, But it's still N-I-N. But yeah, Nine Inch News. That's better. Why didn't we 
Why didn't you say that in the first place? I just like letting you go on and on, thinking God, that your ideas are so Letting me just so ramble great. like a fucking idiot. It's written right here. You can see the outline. Okay. It's not like it was a secret. So welcome to Nine Inch News. What's new in the world of Nine Inch Nails uh, lately? And I promise we won't take an hour to do this. Uh, well, one thing was Sunspots was played live for the very first time. Folks... We said this about everything. They said it couldn't be done, and then they did everything, and they said sunspots would never be done, and then they did sunspots. I don't know what was holding them back on sunspots. Everything has fan... There's some iffiness there with fans loving it and what hating about, it. What about where is everybody? Where is everybody's coming when we go to see to Red them? Rocks. That's yes. what we're holding out for. So we're, we're calling it right now. We called everything... I'm manifesting it. Yes. <laughs> They played Sunspots, obviously, and it sounded great. I wish I was there. Uh, some people, yeah, you know, some, some of our... listeners and some patrons were there. Um, yep. Stacy was there. Uh, wasn't Lauren there? Lauren, Melissa might have. We're just thinking of UK listeners right now. They might have been there. I don't, I don't have confirmation Adam on either, that. But... Adam possibly there. Not confirmed yet. Sorry, I was looking for my dream set. I, I made notes on a dream set list. Speaking of where is everybody? <laughs> Did you make a... Co- I didn't know I had an assignment. Did I write this in your outline there? You just wrote our dream set list, <laughs> but you never told me that I should I write know, up my because dream set now list. Because I'm bringing so. up the concept just now. I'm bringing up the concept for us. I don't have a dream set list, but I did start making a list. I have songs I would really, really yeah. love to hear, but I don't know if I'd have enough to compile an entire... Well, obviously so, I could make a whole set, but... yeah. This is what I think we should do before our show at Red Rocks early September is actually make and order our dream set list. And I guess we can each have one because we're not going to agree on every little thing. Um, and I've just begun the process because it's, Down it's in it, really. Skin. No, you don't just want Sin, vanilla. Dub. You want these goofy ones. I want them to play closer to Mario if we're doing weird remixes. Maybe just once. Maybe just once is... Is that on yeah. your list? No, but I'm going to oh. put it in as wacky... Pro- we, we thought everything would never happen, so... But some some things I want to hear, some highlights of my list so far. Obviously, Where Is Everybody? Uh, Demon Seed, because it's never been played, and it's just an awesome track that I think would rock live. You don't agree? Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Okay. Every, I want to hear everything. And hopefully we get to do both nights and increases our chances of hearing everything. Various methods of escape. Mm-hmm. I hope hope co- perfect drugs on ours. Copy of a last. I want that. I want that. Did they do last on? They've done mm-hmm. last on this tour. Mm-hmm. They've done. They've done more than fifty songs on this goddamn tour. The rehearsal required for this is wild. I want to hear Ruiner. I want to hear the Becoming. I think they've done the becoming this year, not ruiner. I think that's correct. I'm not gonna look it up. Maybe just once. Pierce feeling. <laughs> Don't necessarily have to have it. Um, am, am I leaving out anything glaring? Did you say down in its skin? No, I'm not gonna say that. You did though. You already. Did said you say it. fashion? Oh, I I do want fashion. Good, good thinking. I'll add it. Also, with Mary Queen. Yeah, with Mary Queen, and Garson shows up out of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need to put just like you imagined on my dream set list. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, I'll spend more time working on it. 
and come back to that. What else has happened in, uh, in Nine Inch News? At Hellfest, they had really cool T-shirts that we want yeah. so bad. If someone can finagle us a me and uh, especially an upside down cross shirt, <laughs> that'd be cool. I like that one. Or bootleggers. Hey, bootleggers, bootleg that Hellfest shirt. Well, I'm not necessarily saying you have to bootleg it just yet, but um, yeah, some lucky folks in France got to go to Hellfest and. They got to see Nine Inch Nails play Isn't Everyone with Health. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. More like Health Fest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that it was, was really cool. That was cool. I, uh, a listener sent a link. I'm going to put that on my list. And I, I got to watch it as it was being live streamed by someone who was there live streaming it. So that was, was that, pretty cool. That's on my dream set list now, Isn't Everyone with Health. Okay. Anything else we had? The new score for Bones and All is finished, according to Atticus. So, okay. Uh, Are they hard at work on on? Well, they have a lot of time off on this tour, so yeah, time in between to do projects. Um, and then I'm a little upset because there's still no Mank. One St- question. <laughs> Big news item: No Mank still. Where's the Mank? <laughs> Hashtag Where's the Mank? Let's get it trending, because it's a real shame. Yeah. Um, that's pretty much it, other than, you know, uh, wishing that Alessandro gets better soon. Yeah, because he came down with COVID. the cocoa. Yeah. Don't, the cocoa. <laughs> what? Hey, I've, I know cool people, smart people who've called it that jokingly, so I stick by it. I, it's just a, just a joke. Okay. It's not funny, because we <laughs> want that we need them so healthy, but luckily lots of time to recover. And like Atticus, I think he'll snap back in fighting form better than ever. Mm-hmm. We just want our boys safe and healthy, you know, because we want this to go off without a hitch yeah. for everybody. Okay. Okay. That's it. That's Nine Inch News. Can you add a little, like, Oh, what am, that's something else. Yeah. News sound. Nine Inch News. That's the Newswire. Okay, cool. What's the next segment on our, <laughs> on our new segmented show? We really don't we're, have a lot of segments. We're, get, we're trying to get more organized and professional in this new series. And we are indeed in an, a whole new series, folks. It's going to be broken up into mini-series like, like Blank Check or something, I feel like. Or Gorley and Rust. This is going to be a long, long Long, journey. fragile summer. Yeah. It's we're going to be a long day's journey from... <laughs> Into fragile summer. Yeah. <laughs> that made no we are, sense. <laughs> we are almost in the dog days of fragile summer. I think the dog days start somewhere in mid-July. I thought they were in August. I think they run in through August. I don't know. Don't, don't, don't at me. But we're going to be in the dog days of fragile summer. We're going to drop the playlist on you, and we'll talk more about the playlist. Mother <laughs> fuck me running. <laughs> I'm so mad. How do you even do that? I don't know. I just spilled water everywhere. Were you talking with your hands just and just got spi- a little too excited? I was talking with my hands. I'm Italian. Ah, <laughs> oh, fuck. I'm gonna, let me go clean up this water and we'll be right back. Okay. Fuck me. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, crisis averted now. Where were we? <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about when I animatedly threw, threw water across it was, the room. It was the fragile playlist. You know what I was doing? I was trying to be like Trent at a live show and toss water all over you. Like a lot of musicians do that, you know, keep the crowd nah, a little I cool. I think Trent invented it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, sure. In the 90s. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lot of firsts there. Fragile summer playlist. We will get to, we will talk more on that at the end of the show. Yeah. I believe I wrote it into your outline. Yes. It's at the very end. Okay. Okay. Cool. So let's get to this, the meat and potatoes yeah. <laughs> of this episode here. Yeah. Let's get, let's get to those potatoes. So <laughs> Blake did not get into the meat. We call this segment the, the piss and the shit. Uh, do we have to? Get down to it. Get um, down in it. We don't have a I'm segment. I'm sorry. We'll come up with name it. for this. This is just the. This is the main show. Main show, guys. So I wanted to do an introduction to the fragile era um, because in previous episodes, we discussed a lot of Reznor's actual work that he completed during this five-year period between the downward spiral and the fragile, right? We yeah. talked about his production work. We talked about like his work on Lost Highway. Yep. Natural Born Killers. Perfect drug. Remixes, Collaborations. Yep. All that stuff. But we didn't really talk about what was going on in his life personally. And as we all know, nothing is created in a vacuum. You know? Right. Everything uh, impacts a person. And that will impact their work, whether it's creative work, whether it's drudge work. I, <laughs> like it's gonna, your environment impacts you. Yes, and, and I you feel can, there were some profound changes during this time period that definitely impacted Reznor and the sound and vibe and content of the fragile. Yeah, and look at it from like a fan perspective. If you were a fan in the '90s. You're just kind of seeing a five-year gap between LPs, which can seem like excruciatingly long. Mm -hmm. Like these days, it'd be like, oh, where did where did that band go? Yeah, um, or really just in any era, that that's a big gap. So people are like, what's going on? When's the new album dropping? Yeah, what's he brewing up? I mean, he just kind of disappeared completely. Yeah, so stuff For is like obviously a couple going years, on at least, yeah. but people don't really know. People did not know at that time what was going on. Yeah. So I want to read a quote before we dive really deep into this. And it's from Bob Ezrin. And Bob Ezrin, we'll get we'll get into more on Bob Ezrin in later episodes, but uh, music producer. Um, and he was called on by Trent to come and help with sequencing the fragile. And I believe we're going to have a whole bonus up on just the sequencing of the fragile. But yes. um, I wanted to read this and... This is actually from the uh, liner notes to the definitive edition of The Fragile. And he actually wrote um, a piece. Yeah, he did the big there. essay. They all yeah. come with that big book. Yeah. And so this was him talking about trying to find the story for The Fragile when he was starting sequencing. Hmm. He said, songs aren't just autonomous events in nature that spring up from nothing. They are expressions of their creator's thoughts, feelings, and intentions at the time of writing. Thoughts can be spontaneous, but they have to pass through the membrane of the writer's personality and life experience. So, even if there isn't an actual narrative at the start of every project, the songs written at that time are shaped by the experiences of the artist, which are in turn affected by present events and environment. And this body of work was 
definitely reflective of a particular period in Trent's life. It had a thread of sound, style, and prevailing atmosphere that ran through every piece. That makes a lot of sense, especially in hindsight. So you were talking about how Trent pretty much disappeared for five years. So uh, not really. Uh, yeah, I mean, I he, mean had he, a, really he had a single or two. But as a fan, after you've worn out your copy of The Downward Spiral, you're just right. waiting, waiting, waiting. You it, know, seemed, it seems like an eternity. Yeah. In fact, it's such an eternity that the cultural climate changed so much, which we'll talk about oh God, in a yes. different episode. 1999? you kidding me? <laughs> From 1994 to 1999. What a weird insane. time. Yeah. All right. Nice to see you. Nice to be here, actually. So the first clip I'm going to play is actually Reznor. He's being interviewed by a very young Zane Lowe here. This was in 1999. So here is Trent discussing what was going on between the time of the downward spiral and the Fragile, just kind of I don't of think briefly. I've ever seen this. A lot of people have been talking since you released The Fragile about how long it took to make this album, blah, blah, blah. I think you've got a lot of uh, over-anxious fans out there who are waiting for it for a very long time. But having listened to it, two CDs over 100 minutes, 23 songs, um, and, you know, just the breadth of emotion that you deal with, I'm quite amazed that you finished it at all. We spent two years working on the album start to finish. So when, you, when, I, when I hear the uh, five-year gap between records, it's... It has been five years, but two of those years was spent um, touring for Downward Spiral. And the end result of all that touring was, um, in, in America, we jumped up a few notches from being a kind of a medium-sized band to a pretty big band. Somewhere along the line, my personality got distorted and kind of trapped, and I think when you're surrounded by the situations we placed ourselves into every night for two years, you, you emerge a different person, and uh, that was a person I didn't I didn't know that well, and I wasn't sure I wanted to uh, get to know that guy that well. So I found myself kind of floundering in a in a place where I was avoiding starting my new album. Okay, that was very eye opening. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I think it's good context for what you were talking about. Exactly. Can I play one more, though? Because this interviewer is kind of goofy. and He's I... got a great goatee, I want to say. Zane Lowe? What's his name? Yeah, that interviewer was Zane Lowe. The next one I'm going to play, it's pretty much the same question, but the person who asks it is kind of goofy. Goofier than Zane Lowe with his goat? I didn't think Zane Lowe was goofy, <laughs> but okay. Um, Just the goatee, sorry. It was just the 90s, man. That's true. It was the style at the time. Yeah. So, um, no, this interviewer, it's at Big Day Out. So it's an Australian. The uh, notorious 99 Big Day Out? Or was it 2000? I think it's 2000. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, Uh, Big Day Out. So um, I'm going to play a clip from an interviewer, and he is asking Trent what took so long. And I don't know. I hope he's joking or trying to make a joke, but he asked something about... Was it software updates? Was the technology not up to par? <laughs> I was like, wait, what? That's got to be a joke, that famous Australian I don't know. humor. That's what I was wondering. Like, maybe it's, maybe it's something was like lost in translation there, yeah, but he elaborates yeah. on it. And I'm like, well, maybe he's serious. Just wait. Shout it out loud. We're here at the big day out in our tent of love, joined by none other than a very special guest, possibly the most special guest we're going to have on the couch all day. Well, I'll just, you know, when the next guy comes in, I'll, I'll say that to Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Welcome, Trent. Thank you. How you going? Uh, 
I've got the flu. I got jet lag. Glad to be here. I'm ready to ready to run. That's cool. It's just, it, it, it took two years to record the album. It's five years since the downwards. Don't be mad. I paused it. Mm-hmm. Can we do a Trent fashion watch because they can't see it at home? <laughs> White tea. Uh huh. Shades. <laughs> Very it's, 90s shades, it's, by the yeah, way. Yeah, extremely, uh, probably uh, Oakley's or something. Yeah, we're not talking like classic Ray-Ban Wayfair shades. So we're this, talking is, very 90s. this is tr- summertime Trent. Mm-hmm. Very apropos for Fragile Summer. Which was your last album. Was any of that time spent waiting for software updates? Is, is technology such a big part of Nine Inch Nails that you're restricted um, by that at all? No, I mean, this is, no, this is all computer recorded on but it was all real instruments this time pretty much um i can't blame i'd like to blame something but the real gates now we're spiral for two years and then uh i was at a state where i wasn't ready to make a good album for about one year it was when, when i did natural born killers and lost highway and yeah and the manson uh Antichrist Superstar record, and then it took me a little while just to really re, re uh, to remember getting excited about music because I got lost in some of the crap and people and situations and uh, just get your head turned around sometimes. And it took me, I, I forgot that the reason I did this in the first place was I love music and I, um, this was, this recording this album was a real, uh, revelation to me and it was really healing the whole process and I feel like you know, not necessarily out, outwardly positive record. I do want to say I'm sorry the sound is ghastly. That's not us. It is the recording. Yeah. So. Sorry about that. It's probably like a sixth generation VHS <laughs> someone did off of Australian MTV. Yeah, probably. I'm not really certain but it's, yeah, not great quality. But anyway. So I just wanted to play that, though, because I like the software updates question. Yeah. And it is kind of funny, as he points out. It's uh, probably more more acoustic and live instruments than it is electronics this time around. But mm-hmm. there's there's an awful lot of computer usage uh, going oh, on. Oh, well, yeah, definitely. And also, by the way, if he were mad at anyone regarding uh, software updates... It would be Steve Jobs because uh, I believe yeah, he at does. the time He's he uses all a lifelong Mac user. Um, I think it was a joke asking about software updates. That's just but me. I almost think that Reznor took it seriously. So I don't. <laughs> I, I think he wanted to point out how much he wished he could blame software for the delay, but has to admit that it I don't was know. Pers- I don't more know. Personal Both of that. them were pretty dry. They're playing so. a little back and a little dry back and forth. I don't know. I like to think that it was uh, a very serious question. Okay. I was serious. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, um, we're going to talk about several different things, but first we're going to talk about just kind of the disillusionment of fame and success, first of all, going into this album. Yes. So, they had a long, grueling tour, two years long. Yeah, damn. And we didn't really get into it, like the party atmosphere of this tour. Like, before this tour, like all the rock shenanigan type things, are those were ma- mainly associated with like, at least in the 80s, like the excess of the 80s, right? Like metal, yeah. that kind of thing. So whenever the new guard of rock stars, like the Eddie Vedders and the Kurt Cobains, you know, kind of kicked out the Axl Roses and mm-hmm. the... 
and the poisons and the uh, Motley Crue's. Sure, yeah. Uh, that kind of debauched tour was not in vogue, if yeah. you know what I'm saying. We know, I mean, the grunge era had its own method of partying, but perhaps it was more lonely um, and not as public and like, uh, 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 you know, the, yeah, like you mm-hmm. said, the debauched tour, the, the, yeah. But that, that tour, the self-destruct tour, was known as the debauched tour. I mean, he was yeah. on tour with Jim Rose Circus, right? So you were on tour with people who are willing to do a lot of things to their bodies. Yeah, so see see our episode on closure mm-hmm. and then go back and watch that VHS tape and you'll see. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, probably the party atmosphere you see on that yeah. tape is just a fraction obviously of what was really and probably tame yeah comparatively the worst stuff probably didn't make it to tape but (laughs) we who's to say what what happened no i don't i don't know but uh they partied like it was a party tour yes um and i I think i read somewhere like i was reading like a funny article and they said it was also when manson discovered cocaine so you have that (laughs) oh where he was walking around (laughs) and he was like i'm on drugs like he said, I have a hangover, which means I did too much drugs the night before. T- uh, yeah, typical first-time drug user response. <laughs> so anyway, as he said, they also, while they were on tour, evolved from what I would say was a small, important band to yeah. a big, arena size important yeah. band, right? Yeah. And when that happens for Reznor, the band was just not as much fun. He had people rooting for him to fail, which he talks about a lot, and we'll get more to that. And then there's a change that is going to happen to you whenever you become that Mm -hmm. famous, right? Of course, and making more money, that obviously changes people. Yeah, and about the party scene, Reznor said, it's New Year's Eve every night. I had everything I wanted, and I wasn't feeling good about it. Um, And that tour was just, he said, it got very, very ugly, Band members were at each other's throats, and everyone was sick of playing the same songs night after night, and probably just exhausted. Yeah, Mal- malnutritioned. You know, you're not eating right. I, uh, could, I don't think I could do it. Like going constant out, hangover. <laughs> and yeah, just the 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 crankiness of it all. Yeah, and just yeah, the little petty disagreements with your bandmates blowing up into. The whole thing. Yeah. So in 1999, he told Reagan, now it was truckloads of people and buses and planes. The success level went up another big notch. And then it got into the dangerous realm. If you're a little band, a little underground band, it's more fun because there aren't as many people watching you, not nearly as many people waiting to destroy you and tear you down and rip you apart. As soon as you cross some threshold into success, it's surprising how many people start turning on you. And the same magazines I couldn't wait to champion you are like, oh, you're a little too big now, and they can't wait to tear you down. Watch. MTV does it all the time. Uh, soon after, MTV stopped doing any sort of music criticism. <laughs> so that would be a moot, a moot point. Well, I mean, I think he was talking more about, like, the example he gave, and I didn't write it down, but he was talking about Millie Vanilli, right? They were mm. in the late... 80s, early 90s. I can't remember the exact time era. But they were like MTV darlings. Yeah. You know, like they, they played, were hot guys. Yeah. Well, they were hot guys <laughs> and they had a hot pop single, you know, a couple of hot pop singles. And yeah. then suddenly they were caught lip syncing. People love, yeah. MTV just, you know, just immediately, I'm sure. Yeah. Just probably reporting on it nonstop. Kurt Loder coming in every 10 minutes on the hour telling you about the <laughs> Millie Vanilli lip syncing scandal. <laughs> Kurt Loder here again mm-hmm. with the latest updates on uh, 
<laughs> Lipgate. The Lipgate. Sorry, yeah, that was your, bad. Your <laughs> Lipgate. Lip yeah, I'm okay. Shouldn't let you ramble. I shouldn't be allowed to like <laughs> improv at all. Well, especially because I'm not an improver, nor do I ever claim to be. So well, I, I know sometimes I'm just like, I'm not even going to interact with yeah, this. Yeah, she doesn't. She won't even respond. She'll just be like, no. But I'm just just doing it by myself. I'm not even doing a good job at it. Sorry, folks. Continue. <laughs> okay. So um, Reznor told CMJ, and this was in 1997. So I don't even know if he had really even started recording um, the Fragile at this time. Maybe a yeah. little bit. Maybe some demos were done. But... Um, he said, after our last round of touring, I thought Nine Inch Nails was a bloated, stupid thing that had become a parody of itself. Mm. I was embarrassed looking at videotapes of us performing. You switch modes from wow. being the intellectual guy who thinks about what he's going to do to the guy who just does it on tour. But after the tour, I looked back at some of that stuff and felt like I was becoming another artarded rock guy. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, when I started out, I had dreams of being Mr. Big Time, but I never thought I'd attain anything. Where I grew up, girls didn't like me, and I wasn't a football star or anything. Then suddenly it's like you're rich, and your nose isn't that big, and girls like you. And that can freak a lot of people out. But there's a point where the individual has to check in on themselves and realize enough is enough. I realized I was an asshole, shitty to old friends and new people I met. I thought, my shit doesn't stink anymore. I'd seen people like Axel Rose surrounded by people saying things like, yes, Mr. Rose, that does smell good. Can I flush it for you? <laughs> so at one... <laughs> That's good. That's a good line. So at one point I sat back and looked at myself and went, you're a fucking asshole. You've become what you never thought you'd be. Hmm. Kind of just believing the hype about himself. The becoming was actually about just becoming an asshole. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah. Wild, though, to think that this is only their second LP. I know. And he's like, we're too bloated. We've become a parody of ourselves. My brother in Christ, you have two albums and an EP. <laughs> Chill out. You have a million. He didn't know he had a million year career ahead. Well, yeah, it's there's we'll come back to how they only have two LPs out in a, in a little bit. when We talk about pressure. Yeah. Uh, so. He's also said, I didn't like the person I was at the start of this record. So this is later. This was in 1999 that he was telling Kering this, right? Mm -hmm. So he had a couple more years to reflect on it, and the album is finished. Um, yeah. So he said, the downward spiral became a self-fulfilling prophecy. I wound up distorted, someone that I didn't know. Finishing a long tour for that record, I found myself in a weird place. Everything was different than when I got on the tour bus a few years before. More people kissing your ass and more wanting you to fail. Then I went right into doing a Manson record, which was a way of staying on tour mentally. Every night was some ridiculous scenario. When that finished, I was really in a low emotional place and disillusioned. Um, so really, after the tour, he never really even had a tour come down because he went straight into recording yeah. Antichrist Superstar. More party mode. More party More mode. Party in the studio. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but a real bummer that one couldn't enjoy things that should uh, be technically living the dream. Mm -hmm. So another thing I want to talk about when we talk about the disillusionment of fame, and this might've been something that contributed to Reznor not really wanting to write a lot, but did you know, Blake, that Trent Reznor was sued? I know now. Cause you told me, <laughs> um, I don't recall hearing about this story. Okay. You don't hear about this one a lot. So probably a lot of you out there know it already though. In 1997, 
Reznor was sued by, I believe it's an L.A. musician named Mark Onofrio. And he claimed that Reznor stole six of his songs, which appeared on the Downward Spiral and the Natural Born Killer soundtrack. And so he was suing Reznor for damages for injunctive relief for copyright infringement and unfair competition. He stole my songs. Basically. A, a hot place, okay? <laughs> um, Mr. Self-Destroyer? Are you kidding me? The Upper Twist? He's... <laughs> What the fuck is that? The upward, the upward twist. twist is the newest dance sensation. It's the hottest thing since the goddamn Cupid Shuffle. The upward twist is the <laughs> is the biggest meme that the Nailed Podcast ever dropped on the internet, and I want it to blow up. Listeners, you know what to do. Show us the upward twist. Make a TikTok. We're making a TikTok, and we're doing the upward twist. I'm sorry. I'm not. Oh my God. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit. Anafrio claims that he sent a copyrighted album called Elephant Man to Reznor in 1993. Was he a, uh, also a fan of David Lynch, you think? Maybe, yeah. Okay. So he allegedly, he and Reznor met in a chat room or something. In a chat room? I, it was like 1993. No, I'm just saying wild. Because <laughs> this is early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To be in a chat. This room. was the time. Okay, this was the era when my only when I lived in Marshfield, only super rich people had internet in the early early. I mean, I mean these were like really university people. people. Yeah, and my friend had internet, and the first time I ever got online, she was like, "We were in sixth grade, maybe seventh grade." No, yeah, Let's it would have been it would have been post nineteen ninety three even because yeah, I was definitely in like. Early junior high. Dare me to type in sex.com. No, she went to an AL chat room and she's like, we can get a gross old man to say dirty things to us. And I was like, what? She's trying to do that yeah. on purpose? Oh, yeah. Come so on. So she was like, watch, we can just do a... Uh... Oh God. You shouldn't be telling me this. This is yeah. like felonies. Well, I'm, we were just entrapping the, old... the pervs. We weren't... <laughs> yeah, not good. Not good. We were just children. Everyone I don't know. Wrong. I was just so amazed. I was like, there's really people responding to whatever you're saying right now. <laughs> Like, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was bonkers. Wait, not to sidetrack. Not so to sidetrack. an early internet chat room, for, uh, he claims. Uh -huh. Yes. And when he was chatting with Reznor, I guess they maybe had like some kind of online friendship and he asked if Reznor would listen to his demos. And so he actually FedExed them to Reznor and it was an LA address. I don't think it was made clear whether it was at the Tate house. That's my guess is that it was. Do we know if this was like, is there proof of the... That this FedEx happened? I don't really know. I didn't. I wonder if Reznor. I don't think so because it was thrown out of court anyway. Yeah. Oh, uh, sorry. It was thrown out of court. It was <laughs> no, spoiler alert. Yeah. Dismissed. The judge threw out the case in December of 1998. Um, and some people think that's another reason why he was maybe contributing and doing a lot more production work. Okay. Much, much like Nirvana Baby. So, the lawsuit was dismissed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to get too much into this because this could probably be. Um, a bonus episode, maybe if if patrons are interested in that, I'm not going to force it because it's not my favorite a thing whole to listen episode to. On that, yeah. So I'm just going to play little snippets of the songs, and I want to thank um, Nin Destruct. Yes, Nindestruct.com, great yes. site, and I think the guy who runs it is a listener, maybe. Hey. <laughs> Hope he's listening. Well, thanks for having these files available because I'd never heard them until a couple days ago. Um, 
So the first one I'm going to play is one called Voice, and Anafrio claims that this sounds similar to Closer and Mr. Self-Destruct. So... Takes uh, more from Alice in Chains. Than closer it. music, uh, Mr. Self-Destruct lyrics, and the Becoming lyrics. That's that's what he. Once the yeah the the big big drums and vocals kicked mm-hmm. in, I was it was no similarities here. I mean, it's industrial metal. There's going to be a lot of things that they're going to share. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of. Uh, yeah, you can't copyright the concept of using electronic elements with your metal type music. Yeah, or samples, etc. Um, right. You know, the structures are going to be probably similar in some respects because it is within a certain genre. So, this next one is nothing, and I believe this one is March of the Pigs. Nothing. He, he stole his record label name from this one. I know. Not exactly March of the Pigs. That's a pretty cheesy little keyboard patch there, by the way. Trent would never. The vocal. He's listened to too much Metallica and Alice in Chains and taken a little, taken liberties there. Sorry, this is corny. That's a no from me, dog. Uh, real sounds like hurt. This might be more lyrically, I think, than actual sound, if I remember correctly. Cartoon sounds. A bit uninspired. I'm not trying to just dunk on the man, but... You really open yourself up to criticism when you make these claims. Also, you can't claim that someone writing a song about pain when you have a song about <laughs> yeah. pain Excuse is me. copyright. 
I wrote about pain, and then a year later, he wrote about pain. Lawsuit time. Bullet from a gun? Big man with a gun? Uh-oh. Copyright. He didn't claim that one. Okay, so a song called Dinner with Jeff. <laughs> now, this is the best title yet. This one is has similarities to uh, The Downward Spiral, according to Anafrio. Okay. Got a little 3-4 action here. Dinner with Jeff. I do like the title. I do too. You think it was inspired by Dinner with Andre? My Dinner with Andre? <laughs> yeah, you should have called it My Dinner with Jeff. <laughs> when I woke up in the morning, he uh, had a broken rib here. I wonder what he's taking clips from. Apparently I had uh, beaten him to death with my fist. What? And, uh, I... I don't honestly know if this is a clip or if it's the singer <laughs> speaking like Reznor did. Oh, maybe. Maybe he's like, he stole my idea of like a distorted spoken word. It's like, no. Also, can I just say something to people? Don't send people your shit, even if it's solicited. Literally, why? (laughs) Like, don't do it. Don't send your stuff to anyone. I wonder if Reznor admitted that he did solicit this uh, FedEx. Yeah. Or Or if that part's a lie, too. Maybe he felt slighted because, like, Trent unfriended him and, like, ghosted him. and <laughs> Trent took him out of his top eight. Yeah, and he was like, something like that. F, I can't believe you took me out of your top eight, man. That hurts. <laughs> Probably some kind of personal slight led to this. I'm not certain. I mean, number one, don't send people your shit. But number two, like we said at the beginning, we don't live in a vacuum. And if someone hears something, they might subconsciously be like, hey, that's kind of a cool idea. Yeah, and I'm not saying, by the way, that any of this happened, but I mean, I don't think there's I think any there chance. is. There's there are things like accidental. I don't know. We talked about this whenever yeah. we were talking about a warm place. The accidental right? borrowing, right? Right. But I also think there's blatant stealing, like the Dua Lipa controversy. I contend that's another case of accidental. It borrowing. is identical. People, it's identical. But it's not. It's just very similar. It's almost identical. Sorry, I don't think that's accidental borrowing. I, it's so similar that they should definitely be getting royalties for that track. And I'm not that kind of person who I'll get. I'll give them royalties, but yeah. And but I'm. I would if it were me. If I were the. It, I mean, we it, talked about this when it happened because yeah. I mean, it's totally possible that someone randomly it heard it and that melody got in their head. Yeah. And then later on, they took it. But still, it's so close that. But re- none, nothing I'm hearing here is that close for me to think that it is a blatant like the case. Copy. The best case against this uh, knowing theft of melodies and such is that in in both cases it's unnecessary. Why would Dua Lipa and her producers need to steal melodies? Melodies are infinite, and why would Trent Reznor need to steal anything at all? It's always unnecessary. It's just awfully close. Someone had to hear something in the case of Dua Lipa. I mean, it's too similar. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not going to argue with I you because you I will know. argue with me over the most pedantic no, stop. things. 
when I'm just like, listen to the two things, they sound no, I know so that. similar. I know, I know they do. Okay, so the next one was This Hell, which sounds similar to... This Hell. Burn. Help the natural me. Born killers. I, th- I think he stole the title from Broken. Is this a Depeche Mode drum beat? <laughs> Could be. Clang. It just says hell. I wonder what this takes from Burn, allegedly. I think he should have sued Marilyn Manson instead. (laughs) Honest to God, more similarity there. Absolutely. Okay, I'm just going to stop it. I don't really want to go too far into this. Like I said, if, if any patron uh, wants a deeper comparison, we could Nin probably Destruct. do that. But if you want to listen to yourself, go to uh, nindestruct.com. You can find yeah. them there or uh, message us. We can put links in the show notes, whatever. Do your own. You can do your own research, kids. Yeah, it's very interesting. <laughs> it's a fun exercise, but sorry that it's, I, that's doesn't have a lot to do with Fragile Summer. Or does it? What are you talking about? I'm just saying the connection to the fragile era is it that this this lawsuit was happening are you trying to give us context? This lawsuit was happening in the time when he was beginning to yeah, write the fragile. Yeah, I said it was 1997. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm just for myself <laughs> because I'm very dumb. I'm reiterating. Okay. So, now let's move on to something else I want to talk about which is just Pressure and procrastination. So um, I'll admit that I am a person who is a huge procrastinator. I will wait right until the end. I will wait until basically last minute to do things that would not have taken much time. Um, A lot of it is because I want things to be perfect, (laughs) even though that's not always going to be the case. But because of that, it's it's very unmotivating for me sometimes to start certain projects. It's just... I procrastinate on them. Either I'm not in the mood or I just am exhausted or, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why you procrastinate on something, but a lot of it is also just where do you start? (laughs) Where do we start? Yeah. Starting is the hardest thing. Exactly. So because of various pressures, um, internal or external, um, things like the lawsuit, the difficulty to return to like a normal life after touring and things like writer's block, which we'll talk about later and other creative issues, and things like depression, which we'll also talk about a little bit later, Reznor took on other projects to avoid having to write and reflect. And also just the general success of the downward spiral. Like, how do you follow something like that up? How do you yeah. follow up something that is both critically acclaimed and you know commercially, commercially accepted and successful? Yeah, That's always, yeah, with any kind of artistic endeavor, following up when you have a hit, Following it up is like the downfall of so many artists. Yes. Um, I mean, I've just always said there's a reason why Harper Lee basically had one book published. And it's because how do you top to kill a mockingbird? You know what I mean? Like, you can't. This is a thing that I've thought about for a while. I don't know if I've mentioned it on 
this podcast before, but people expect too much. This is this goes to the pressure of it all. Like music nerds out there, we often expect too damn much. Having a masterpiece like the Downward Spiral is uh, amazing in itself. No one is guaranteed more than one masterpiece in this lifetime. I think like, we talked about since we talked about Tim Burton or something at one point. Yeah, for some reason on not, this podcast. Oh, so it was on the podcast. Yes. But yeah, one masterpiece in a lifetime, you had a good life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you do not owe the world a second or third or more masterpiece. Well, you can't expect someone to create at that level all the time either. Yeah. Like as a fan, you can't expect someone to have that kind of dedication. We'll talk about that later too. Like basically he gave up any kind of normal life to be able to work on this project. Yeah. And we'll talk about that, but you can, that is not sustainable. It is not sustainable to be able to work the way he did on the fragile. Right. It's, um, all consuming. Yeah. You just can't, you can't live like that forever. But I do feel like the reason why we have gotten so much good art is because, for the most part, it was also like he's incredibly prolific, but he doesn't release it all. He's not like Ryan Adams who takes a shit and puts out an album. Well, he used to. Like, he has so many albums, it's insane. Yeah, too many. Too many. Prolific does not equal greatness. And I think he knows how to like edit himself, or at least he learned how to, maybe. Uh, a lot of this, I mean, look at all the tracks done in these sessions that didn't make it to the album. Yes. And so I feel like one reason why we've gotten so many good albums is because he doesn't put everything out. Like he takes his time, thinks about yeah. it, rewrites things. Like he's, I, I feel that's one reason why there was a period where once again, this is his second album. <laughs> like it's or the, his, the fragile. Oh wait, the hit. third, the third. Yeah. yeah. It will be this third album. Sorry. Yeah. The downward spiral is just a second. So at this point, it's just and going with a big old double on the uh, on the third. I mean, by LP. this point, Nirvana had released three LPs by 1994, right? They had Bleach, Nevermind, yeah, and that's all they ever did was. Well, three yeah, LPs. but I'm just saying that was in five years, and Reznor yeah took ten to make three and yep. an EP and yeah. some remix albums. I mean, I'm not trying oh, to dismiss those. Many but, other projects in there. Yes, but yeah. I I I I prefer an artist to take their time on. On LPs like this. Yeah. So he was even asked, you know, by the LA Times, they asked, what about all the acclaim that came your way after the downward spiral? Did that help you through this period, you know, while you were trying to write The Fragile or make it harder? And Reznor said, all that stuff is very flattering, but at the time it was more and more layers of pressure. As I look back, I didn't sit down consciously and say, I really don't want to make a record right now. But I can see where I was stalling by taking on some other projects and being busy with unimportant things. In retrospect, I was afraid. Songwriting is the hardest thing I've ever attempted because it is a mirror. It forces you to deal with things about yourself, and that can be hard if you don't like what you see. And it also reinforces feelings of worthlessness because you fail more than you succeed. I throw out 90% of what I write because it's not good enough. I didn't have it in me to fail anymore at the time, so I didn't try. Hmm. So... Also just couldn't take failure at that time. Or the uh, feeling, perception feeling, of exactly. failure. Exactly. His own perception of failure, yes. yeah. So, and once again, hard to switch gears coming off the road and start writing again, right? Mm-hmm. So he said, when I get off the road, 
I'm not inspired about anything. And that's when the idea of the Manson record came up and the Quake video game soundtrack and minor things we've been doing. Distractions for me where I could get outside of the pressure of Nine Inch Nails, pressure, with Nine Inch Nails, I feel like everything I do has to be really important. And the chance to work with Manson in the producer capacity was a challenge I hadn't really had before, and it was really rewarding. I came up with shit, and we got along great, and they were my best friends, and that was fun. And this was to Ray Gunn um, in 1997 that he said this. Mm, okay. So a couple years before The Fragile was even done, and probably when he's starting to record this. Yeah. And, you know, he just didn't want to spend time by himself and actually sit down and write like you know he didn't want to look at himself he wasn't ready for that he'd been going through some issues two in his head yeah at this two in his own head at this yeah. time so he said i knew what i didn't want to do was sit in a room by myself and think about things but i was avoiding starting work on this record because i was so generally unhappy that i couldn't it didn't make sense to me nothing brought me joy after I got everything I ever wanted, I was fucking worse off than I was before. I was letting a lot of shit go that I needed to fully address. So The curse of fame, the careful what you wish for trope. <laughs> yeah, kind of. It happens. Yeah. So then this pressure started after all of the accolades, right? So not only was the Downward Spiral super critical success and commercial success, right? Mm-hmm. Reznor also found himself in these weird positions. Like, for example, Time Magazine named him one of the 25 most influential Americans in 1997. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I'll read a little bit of the write-up. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's so, it's so like... Can he just get Sexiest Man Alive <laughs> Come on, people. What are you doing, People Magazine? Sorry, I wasn't talking about people in general. How about a Forbes 40 under 40? About damn time. <laughs> Too late now, but... We can go back and retroactively yeah. pursue for that. Okay. So I want to read just what was in, the, I think, okay. the opening paragraph of the time. Because it sounds so like a reporter writing about something they don't know about. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. This sounds horrible to say, but here we go. Trent Reznor is the anti-Bon Jovi. He is the <laughs> Lord of Industrial. By the way, Lord mm. and Industrial are capitalized. Okay. And electronic music form that, with its tape loops and crushing drum machines, harks back to the dissonance of John Cage and sounds like capitalism collapsing. I do like that. Yeah, not wrong. Yeah. But I do want capitalism to collapse, so that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> that's just saying that, not the writer here. Uh but Reznor, with his vulnerable vocals and accessible lyrics, led an industrial revolution. He gave the gloomy genre a human heart. It's been said that he wrote the first industrial love songs. Um, sure. So um, he was also named, and we talked about this briefly because it was around the same time that The Perfect Drug came out. But he was named um, Spin Magazine's most vital artist in music. So yeah, let's talk. A little, I'm going to talk briefly about just briefly about culture just a tiny bit culture S- just a tiny just the musical the pop culture okay. yeah so Late 90s exactly there was mounting pressure because the the old guard that had taken over right the alternative rock gods were starting to bon jovi um, was starting to crumble into <laughs> dust and blow away they were actually starting to not they were not having success and here's mm. what i mean so after Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, the Smashing Pumpkins released Adore, and that album flopped. Mm-hmm. It flopped in comparison to Mel. By the way, it still sold. I think it was still certified platinum. So it still sold over a million copies, which is 
an incredible accomplishment. And right now, if someone did that in physical music, we would yeah, be bashed in. <laughs> right. Like, this album's huge. It's not you know? happening a lot. So, um, Melancholy itself was four times platinum, by the way. And that was a double Damn. album. Yeah. Pearl Jam, right? Huge hits um, with things like Versus. Like, I think Versus was one of the highest selling albums of all time, like in the mm. first week. Um, until like Taylor Swift came around and every one of her albums <laughs> beat that record. Right, but of uh, yeah, like it was a huge album, but No Cold and Yield, although they both went platinum, they did not have the success of those, their previous, you know, albums and yeah. earlier alt rock era. So because of that, and because of things like the rise of pop music like Britney Spears and boy bands like it's the Backstreet Boys. They are coming onto the scene at this time and changing and, the landscape. Exactly. And in sync and because of new metal, corn, mm. Lint Biscuits, Deftones. <laughs> there was a lot of pressure. And oh, let's just talk about shit rock, right? Like, I'm sorry. Shit I don't know what rock. I mean. But like, I don't know. I've just never been a big fan of like Matchbox 20. Oh, they're not really shit. Honestly, they're just more like, like lame, I want to say like mom core, and I don't even mean that. Core. That sounds mean too. I don't mean it's that. Just it's like not. It's just lame. it's adult contemporary alternative. Yeah, yeah. There yeah, we yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Smooth. the nicer. By by Rob Thomas featuring Santana, and that's probably their most rocking song. To be honest, no Santana featuring Rob Thomas. I'm that's sorry. exactly right. Get it right. Number I'm one. Very sorry, right. Santana. <laughs> Number two, that song rocked harder than I think anything Matchbox 20 ever made. Yeah, I was uh, so sick of hearing it. Man, it's a hot one. <laughs> it is out there, folks. It's Fragile Summer. <laughs> so, but anyway, there was this expectation that Reznor was going to save rock and make it less sucky. Save us, Trent, they said, as they were waiting. Yeah. So this next clip, we're going to hear uh, Reznor talk to our fave MTV newsman, hmm. Kurt Loder. Is it the load man it's himself? the load man he, I love himself. how Trina sat in a plush throne. <laughs> I'm going to call it a plush throne. It's like the most goth interview setting I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's all reds and blacks. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I wonder if uh, this was recorded at his home or... His haunted home. Oh, maybe. I it know. looks like that kind of decor. It does. Looks like very New Orleans gothic, I would call yeah. it. Okay. On top of his personal torments, Reznor started feeling pressure from fans and critics to create a new album that would shake up the dull and cheesy music scene of the late 90s. And all during this time, I'm getting, um, you know, please come save rock. I didn't have to save rock. I don't, I don't even like rock that much. So really at about one time, and this was about two years ago, I really... Um, so it was time to get going. That was a short little clip here. I'll read you something a little bit now longer. It's, that's it's good info and in, in bite-sized form. That's right. So um, when he was interviewed by Pulse magazine in 1999, they talked about how Alternative Press had called The Fragile the most anticipated album of 1998. But then they had to change it to 1999 oh, no. because it was not released on time. Uh and he was talking about kind of like a lack of motivation after that. And he said, it wasn't writer's block. It was motivation difficulty. You know, I was just really questioning, wow, I never thought I'd even get a record deal, let alone have people care about what I'm doing. And at the peak of that, reading most anticipated record of the year, and I haven't really started it yet, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm supposed to be doing that assignment? <laughs> oh, do you know yeah. if that's due tomorrow? <laughs> 
I didn't want to start it. I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. And then most anticipated of next year and will he save rock? I don't want to fucking save rock. You're sitting in the studio playing a part and you're thinking, is that going to save rock? That part's not going to do it. What about this idea? I don't know. That might sustain it for a second, but it's not going to save it, you know? Do you think that pressure... This is going to be a way more rock record than we've ever heard from Nine Inch Nails, who Mm -hmm. I would not call rock uh, up to this point at all. Didn't you find a book recently that said the classic rock era ended at The Fragile? Yes. I uh, requested it into the library. We don't have it yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, But who's that author? I forget. I think I, it's I, the same author who wrote your uh, "This Band Could Be Your Life," yeah. which is about bands like um, Husker Du and the book title is uh, "Twilight of the Gods," I believe. Okay. And the author says the classic rock era begins with Sgt. Pepper's and ends with the Fragile. And as out there as that might sound, I don't totally disagree with that, and I see. I, mean, I see you what hear he means. The classical rock influence all over this. Cl- classical rock. Sorry. <laughs> you hear the classic rock yeah. influence all over this record. You do Sorry. more so Sorry. than like you don't. You definitely don't think a pretty hate machine is rock. Uh, uh, broken, broken does rock. Oh no, I was wrong. This is not the. It yeah. was your favorite band is killing me. Yeah, not yeah. this band can be your. But life. you know that Sorry. author as well, right? Have you? Did you? I've read never. That? No. Oh, never I read. thought you had. I don't think so. Sorry. Okay. What was the author's name? Oh, sorry. I thought I said his name. It's Stephen Hyden. Okay, Hyden. But yeah, Save Rock is is a weird thing to ask of a person who I never saw as a savior of rock of, or like well, even I think in the rock meaning, genre. Well, I mean, rock had morphed into alt rock, you yeah. know, and that I think that's what their meaning was like. I mean, that was what mainstream rock was. It was alt rock. So yeah. to save rock, yeah. Because at the time, you also had the threat of electronic music, right? Like, remember yeah. whenever we were told Prodigy are <laughs> your next rock stars? And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, all right. Meet, the, 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 meet your new rock gods, Fat Boy Slim. <laughs> the okay. new Led Zeppelin, Chemical Brothers? All right. Okay. Like, it was something that I feel like was really force-fed to a lot of American yeah. kids. Like, we were told rock is dead, electronic is the new rock. Stop trying to make the prodigy happen. The okay? world was so scary after Kurt Cobain died to people. We, people didn't know where to turn, honestly. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. Music music didn't know what to music do. Fractured. It was a very crazy time. I bet you could make some thesis on how music the the landscape of music was forever changed by just this one man's death you know cobain yeah we probably wouldn't have had as much electronica shoved down our throats and <laughs> and the absence of trying to find something to replace him sorry i'm not, I'm not an electronic I'm, hater by I'm the way i'm grateful by for electronic way. stuff obviously coming into the mainstream i'm a, personally i love the, i love me some synth pop so i'm not trying to diss but it's just weird to think of the Chemical Brothers as rock stars. They're not. like. They were never cut out to be. No. Or n- <laughs> but, they, but music was really trying to make that happen. Music magazines, music press, MTV. Yes. yes. So people were like, we got to have rock saved by this guy who really loves electronic elements in his music. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, one more thing, and this is going to be very brief discussion. After the recording of Antichrist Superstar and... Most likely, probably more likely with the publication of his 
memoir, The Long Hard Road Out of Hell, uh, Reznor and Manson just aren't friends anymore, suddenly. Because um, of all the nasty things in the well, book. Well, yeah, okay. That, could, that couldn't have helped. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read just a little quote from Reznor in Kerrang, and he said, If certain people do certain things which cross a line of what is decent, I don't deal with them anymore. With Manson, that line has been crossed. He said some very ignorant, mean, malicious things. Mm. You can believe me or you can believe someone else, but on that tour, that party tour, I was peripherally involved as an observer and I'm suddenly pictured as the ringleader. It's just stirring up shit. Trent does not like shit to be stirred, by the way. No, we don't even try this. it. Don't try on to the stir up that shit. <laughs> Anyway, he said that friendship was a big fuck up for me. It fucked me up pretty good. So basically, mm. we're probably going to cover this when we talk about Starfuckers Inc. Um, yeah. And we talk about the video for that in particular. But when Manson published his autobiography, Reznor was portrayed as like very voyeuristic and very manipulative and uh, apparently also has a taste for shitty women, putting that in quotation marks. Um, and Reznor felt very betrayed by these stories that were shared, whether they're true or not, whether it's Manson adding to his own myth-making. I mean, we know. A lot of it seemed to be a fabrication from Neil Strauss, right? Who I really don't know. I haven't read the he, book. He, I've, read, I've read parts of the book, but I've never read the whole thing. I haven't read it, thing. but uh, from my understanding, Neil Strauss wrote it with well he wrote it with manson yeah yeah so it was yeah one of those yeah i really don't know but yeah i'm not gonna get in litigate uh, i'm not gonna (laughs) litigate into what happened and what didn't happen but losing a person who is your one of your closest friends is really hard especially if you're someone who doesn't let a lot of people in um and you know there's also rumors that you know well, actually, this isn't really a rumor. Um, I guess Manson has said the only reason Nothing Records was successful was because of him and his album sales, oh. things like that. Um, and I also read in a Rolling Stone, I've never read this anywhere else, by the way. So, But in this issue of Rolling Stone, I was reading in an article about Reznor. They said that allegedly there were rumors that Manson wanted Bowie to produce Mechanical Animals instead of Reznor because it was Manson's glam rock phase. Right. You know? And it yeah. was yeah, a lot of Bowie yeah. posturing going on. Yeah. And Reznor was offended by that. So uh, just for anyone who's wondering, Mechanical Animals was produced by Manson, Michael Beinhorn, and John Beaven. So. Was there ever any chance that David Bowie would possibly ever think no, about I producing No, I honestly do not no, think so. He even, I even have a quote from him later on where he's like, Manson ain't got the talent. It's the Reznor kid, basically is what he says. And I'm not trying to shit on people who are Manson fans he at just, all, by he, the way. Bowie's just calling it like he sees it. <clears throat> I'm not trying to turn this into a podcast where it's I hate Manson or I hate his music because I did really like his first three albums as a teen. Like, And I even loved Mechanical Animals, by the way. I thought it was great when I was a kid. I got very into Antichrist Superstar because of the Reznor connection. I didn't, nothing else really grabbed me very much. So, I mean, we can talk about this more. Um, I'm not going to get too far into it now, but just things got weird, man, between two besties, and that hurts. And we know Reznor's a pretty private person, so I'm sure he also didn't appreciate whatever uh, Manson shared, I will probably get that book and read it just because I'm curious. Oh, boy. A friendship disintegrating will fuck you up. Just from my 
non-famous lived experience, you know? Yeah. It sucks. So I want to talk a little bit about depression now. Oh, great. So it was... um, Let's lighten the mood. (laughs) Can you play some little pop music behind me as I talk about this? Just reminds me of the the Bill Hicks thing when he's like, I'd like to lighten the mood and talk about abortion. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have a lot to say about that, too. Same vibes. Yeah. So... After this grueling tour, after losing his friend, after trying to adjust to real reality, uh, and not having what I would say is normal uh, friendships, and also kind of having a lifelong loneliness, which I'll talk a little bit about here. But um, these things made Reznor finally think... He started to get to the point where he was, I can't get out of bed depressed, which I've I've mm. been there. Yes, um, me too. Yeah, it's not a good place. And even though like he had, I don't want to say, I think he uses the term flirted with in some of the quotes I might read, but depression was kind of maybe a little bit of a tool for him when he was writing. And he kind of talked about how he flirted with it, but it wasn't all encompassing, right? Does that sound... So he didn't, it wasn't. Like it could have been, obviously depression was kind of a muse for the downward spiral, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. that's what I mean. Like it, it was kind of a tool. But that, it didn't become, it wasn't something it, in his life that was debilitating. Exactly. Like in, a, in a, the worst of the major depressive episodes. Until. Will totally debilitate you. This time period. Yes. Was when it started to become debilita- debilitating. Mm-hmm. I can't talk. So, um. He actually did go out and seek help. But he has said before that he's just been kind of a lonely person all his life. He has said, all my life, I felt that I don't fit in anywhere. Maybe it depends on the fact that my parents got divorced when I was small. Um, Before the recording of The Fragile, I pondered a lot upon my loneliness. I had reached a point where I got everything I wanted and people flattered me to such an extent that it was impossible to handle a common conversation. I felt more alone than ever before, which aggravated my general condition. So... Not my, only is he the kind of private guy who lets few people in, but because of the fame, maybe things are more shallow. The relationships are more shallow with some yeah, people, not everyone. I mean, you hear often that fame can lead to more loneliness, which is seems counterintuitive, but it makes sense because it's hard to make a real yeah. friendship uh, as opposed to fake friends. But yeah, maybe having... Maybe there was underlying depression. Sometimes it can be a lifelong disease Mm -hmm. that comes up in adolescence. And having that disease uh, can certainly lead to a feeling of like you're destined to be lonely, right? And you may not be able to explain why until you understand the condition better. But even while on tour, you know, there's this loneliness there. Um, this uh, next quote is from the Australia, Rolling Stone Australia in 2000. So it was after they'd started touring for The Fragile. Um, mm-hmm. And he said, I'm around people now, but not amongst them. You're around them. They're around you. Sometimes on days it gets strange and lonely. You look out and you see everybody with their friends doing their thing and they're there right now and they're there for you, but they go off to their worlds and their lives and their other interests. And then you go and do the same thing somewhere else for a bunch of other people you don't really know or don't at all. You communicate with them in a strange way. 
and they know all kinds of things about you, but you don't know anything about them. Sometimes it can feel a bit whorish. 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 <laughs> sounds sounds a bit like having a podcast. <laughs> Such a weird transactional relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, not really. Parasocial relationships. That's what they call them. Ah, interesting. For the content creators of the world, <laughs> which is what they call artists now. Yeah, I do always tell people at work that I really love doing kind of like um, boring maintenance work because then I can listen to my friends. That's what I call my podcast. My friends in my, my friends. head, my little friends in my ears. Podcasters. That's right. I like that too, though. My best dishes. friend is Matt Gorley and Paul Russ, probably. They're my besties. I'd love to hang with them. And Rob from 60 Songs That Explain yeah, the 90s. Yeah, you love him. I do love him. Anyway. So, anyway, I want to hang out with Paul F. Tompkins. Be my bestie, uh, Paul yeah. and Jamie. We should, we should double date, <laughs> I think. I think they'd like us. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not as cool as them. Anyway, so... um. Like I was saying earlier, he dedicates himself so completely to music that there's just no chance he can have a normal life at this period, right? Um, yeah. He had he told USA Today, I neglected things that made me human. I gave up friends and relationships thinking, I'll get to that later. And I forgot I was in this for music, not to run a label or get sued or hear Courtney Love make up stories about me. <laughs> Courtney Love comes up so much I in so many does. conversations. Yeah, there's a little... Axe to grind on both mm-hmm. sides there, I think. Yeah. And he said, there's a shitload of things I've given up to do this. I look at friends from other areas of my life who are now married and paying off condos. They have that rock of stability and normality that maybe they wish they didn't have. It's like, fuck, you've got a lot in that life. When I do something, it's total immersion. I don't allow anything to get in the way. I know what my life now can bring, and it's great things. But there's a shallowness to it. I've been saying for a long time that I've wanted to raise a kid. I'd want to wait until I wanted to dedicate a lot of time to a family. It's wow. not right this second. And this was in Rolling Stone 1999. Little did he know. Well, yeah. In like a decade, he'd have 20 kids. So I didn't realize <laughs> that the seeds were there. Mm-hmm. He knew he wanted to be a family man at some point. Like yeah. that, that's part of his nature, which what, I guess I, I clearly didn't read this interview, but I feel like it surprised a lot of us fans. This was in 1999. I remember reading that interview because there's also parts where he talks about, I might have a quote from that later. Um, but I remember it coming off as a very sad interview um, oh. uh, piece. Just this just sad feeling that lingered yeah. over it. Um, that things weren't resolved and better, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, there's still some trouble there and yeah. a troubled person. So, uh, and I talked about this earlier, right? So um, he kind of flirted with depression as a source of artistic inspiration. He said, I've been down that path. I've thought of it as a resource, as a way of forcing you to deal with things because you can't pave them over. But when you keep doing it and it's still there, that's when it's not that romantic of a notion. Another rainy day when you like just feeling shitty and watching another sad movie, that's all well and good occasionally. But when it's all there, all the time, suddenly it's not as fun to flirt with. It's not as romantic. It's dangerous. It's like thinking you're getting through something and there's a light at the end of the tunnel and there isn't. You get to the end of the tunnel and it's still dim. There's no light anymore and you don't even know where you're going. Um, So he did seek help um, and even tried some medication. Mm. He told Alternative Press, I found out I'm depressed for real. (laughs) I'm Mm. not just saying that as a joke, which I've done my whole life. 
I think even just knowing that and accepting it explains a lot of things, you know? A lot of my behavior makes more sense to me now that there may be some explanation. If you found out you've acted or felt a certain way and there is actually a clinical reason, it's not just that you're a piece of shit or don't have any friends and you don't want any friends and you never stay in a relationship, you realize, all right, there is a reason I felt this way and I'm not a bad person. I feel like I'm more equipped to deal with the situation, although I've opted not to deal with medication or anything like that. But according to a Spin article, Reznor did flirt briefly with antidepressants and, I guess, anti-anxiety type medication such as Effexor mm. and Paxil. And by the way, I know everyone is different mm-hmm. with their reactions to various um, antidepressants, but Effexor yeah. was the worst shit I've ever been on in my life. I... Sure, I took it at some point and didn't like it. <laughs> uh, like I gained like thirty or forty oh, yeah. pounds I'll, very quickly on it. A lot of those will make you just gain. very sluggish, and I have like brain zaps that I think are pretty much caused by that. Where anyway, yeah, it's it's hard to explain. Brain and it may be withdrawals that cause the brain zaps from that, but it was horrible. It was the worst. I mean, if it helps you, awesome. But man, if you can avoid that, if you're if you're trying any kind of medication, try to avoid that one for a while if you can. Um, but it may be right for you. It might know. be right for you. Like I said, everybody's everyone's different. Chemistry is different. Exactly. But for me and for everyone I've known who has ever taken it, they were just like, <laughs> this is the worst drug I've ever been on in my life. And it makes you, honestly, it made me want to stop and not try anymore um, because yeah. it, it really messed me up. They'll and, do that. Yeah. I'm not a fan of Paxil either. Just throwing that out there. (laughs) (laughs) Never use Paxil. Um, So Reznor said on about antidepressants, he said, I went on a brief stint of antidepressants, which taught me a lot about how little they really know what they do to you. Still true. That is, it is guesswork. (laughs) And I'm, I'm pro getting this kind of help, but it's, it's guesswork for the most part. It really is. But really the act of discovering there is something wrong with me, even though I didn't want to hear it was some sort of comfort in the bigger picture. Anyway, he felt like he came out of that diagnosis like a stronger person, right? But when he was on the antidepressants, he said, I was in an abnormally positive mood all the time. Everything was like, it's okay. We'll get to that. Whatever. Part of what drives my personality got removed. Probably was on Effexor, which is a horrible thing. So, um, you know, at this point, because of all these factors and because of the depression, he really did hit the bottom um, or what he thinks is maybe the bottom at this point in his life. He Mm -hmm. said, I saw the bottom when I started this record and I don't want to go back there. It's a place where I couldn't imagine having any worth and couldn't imagine trying to make music. It's a place of loneliness and utter worthlessness. I remind myself of where that is and I don't want to visit there anymore. That scares me. So Mm, I know the feeling. I think a lot of people dealt with similar stuff will also that will resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. Terrifying stuff. Yeah. Not fun. Let's talk about something more fun. Let's lighten the mood and talk about abortion. <laughs> How's everyone doing out there, by the way? Hope you're all holding up uh, okay. So we're going to talk about writer's block. <laughs> um, there was a point, and we talked about this because I found it in an article, and I had completely forgotten about this, but... um. When Rick Rubin was supposed to be the producer for The Fragile. Oh, yeah. That Mm -hmm. was a thing. Yeah. And um, when Reznor was first starting, you know, after he finished up some of his projects and he was first really starting to be like, okay, I've got to get into writing mode. Um, 
he sought advice from Rick, and Rick was like, you know what? You should take a little writer's retreat to Big Sur. So. Um, and write a hip hop, <laughs> hip hop album. Yeah. Album. <laughs> uh, have you heard of uh, rap metal? <laughs> yeah, I wrote down in it. I invented <laughs> rap metal, my friend. Um, so anyway, um, so whenever he was first with Rick, he wanted Rick to give him short-term goals, and Rick was like, rent this house, start writing, and just take yourself, you know, take your dog, take your notebook and a piano, and write songs with no electronic equipment, no synthesizers, nothing. Just try Mm -hmm. it and see what comes up. And he said that this was not really a normal writing process for him, that normally um, Hurt was one of the only songs I think that he had actually written as like a kind of a piano ballad at first. Yeah. Like started around that. But normally how he starts writing the songs is he gets some kind of groove in mind, which sounds totally correct because I think that some of the best fucking... Some of the bangers are (laughs) groove-based. Yes. I mean... Yeah. This man knows grooves. And God knows, I, I think now that he's got the process down, which is to just uh, get in front of the enormous Moog modular synthesizer system and start tweaking knobs until he likes uh, the, the textures that he's getting and yeah. goes from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, normally it's a groove or a drum beat or a bass line, and then he fits everything else kind of around that, and he's never really thought about melody. He just writes lyrics and music and then goes, sings it, and then randomly something will come out, and that's the melody. So he was like, okay, I'm going to try it this way. Maybe I can stumble upon something that's really great. And uh, so we went to Big Sur. And one of the things, though, that Ruben had said before going to Big Sur, like when he was giving Reznor some advice, he was like, um, as a friend and a fan, be aware that I think you're boxing yourself into a corner. There's only so much more extreme you can get lyrically. So, hmm. so a house by the sea, house by the sea. So he did try it. He went to Big Sur and he said, (laughs) I went insane and almost killed myself sitting at a piano trying to write like Tom Petty does. (laughs) I think Petty's great. I also realized that when I sit down and do it, that it starts to sound like Billy Joel's The Stranger. (laughs) What on earth could you imagine? Yeah, that's what he told CMJ in 97. So the whole idea of going to Big Sur according to Reznor in an alternative press interview, was to try to write songs on a piano um, and to avoid becoming a parody of myself. Interesting. So um, he said it was fucking hellacious being up there and uh, it was just complete and utter isolation. Mm. Um, Yeah, Rick Rubin was like, you know what you need person struggling with depression more isolation (laughs) exactly let's get you real isolated yeah and people were telling him like there's a real magical quality there in big sur and he's like yeah there was but it's uh, not everyone's thing it wasn't the kind of magic i wanted at that time he said it was an evil and a darkness whoa yeah he uh, he had a very different experience of big sur i mean he explains this i'm gonna read this another another quote from rolling stone i thought big sur would be a nice break it was sheer terror Isolation on the side of a mountain, an hour from the nearest grocery store. I really didn't want to be by myself. I wasn't prepared for it. I didn't know it was that in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Reznor again on Big Sur. This is kind of a different take, though. Listen to this. 
You'd walk down this rickety ladder to this not very pretty beach scene, crashing waves, moss-covered rocks, weird ocean life. It was scary. It summed up a lot of things like, I should be enjoying this, but I'm not. It's a very spiritual, very cleansing place. But all that my antenna were picking up were the bad parts. Daydreaming, just sitting out there became a catalyst. It's a force that crops up in some of the album's lyrics. I was going to say. So, lyrically. Thematic. <laughs> thematically. Stuff about the sea. Mm-hmm is uh, quite apparent in this album. Does that come directly from watching the waves crash against the rocks? Most Big likely. Sarah? I just think there's something, like the first time I saw the ocean, I just remember it was one of those moments, those rare moments where you realize how small and mm -hmm. stupid everything is and how powerful and beautiful and amazing the universe is. I don't know, you get those moments so rarely and I think the ocean, when you're alone especially, and isolated yeah. is going to be something that strikes you in a very profound way because it looks infinite and if you've never seen something like that it's very jarring yeah anyway i did i didn't La, didn't he say like la mer came directly from this yes i believe so. nothing else of I don't think I'd so. like to argue that maybe some of the great below thematically might have come from the feeling of being depressed at big sur yeah Drowning yourself in the ocean. Yep. But uh, Bowie also offered some um, songwriting advice to Reznor. Very mm. uh, godfather. Yes. And this might actually have been even before Reznor was writing The Fragile. Um, but Reznor said on Bowie that we had long talks when we were on that tour together. He said to me at one point, I don't mean to sound like your dad. He's the exact same age as my dad. But try writing in the third person because you'll find that you'll get yourself out of a hole that I was once in. Hmm. So I've been trying to change that. It's just weird as a writer to try to define yourself in a different way. It's like learning how to write for me because I don't know how to fucking write. He maybe took the advice a little. But the fragile and his work in general is still a lot of first person. Mm-hmm. The verses aren't. She shines in. Yeah, person, there are like like that, mm -hmm. like reptile. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wonder if it's the same lady. <laughs> Who is reptile allegedly about again? Oh, Laura Palmer. Is it Laura Palmer. Yeah. I hope the fragile. The title track is also about Laura Palmer. I mean, she was a fragile creature who did fall apart. Someone let her fall. Was it? What if it's from the perspective of? Ooh, fans are going to hate me. Who's the guy in the leather jacket? <laughs> Which one? Uh, are you talking about Bob? No. You're talking about one of her boyfriends? Lo yeah, one of her boyfriends. Mm -hmm. Anyway, probably um, one of the most profound things that affected Reznor at this time was actually the um, death of his grandmother, Clara, who died in August of 97. And yeah. uh, he had a very special relationship with his grandmother. Um, she actually helped raise him after his parents divorced when he was a small child. I think raised him and his sister. Mm -hmm. um, so it was not, I mean, it's always sad when a grandparent passes. Yeah, but, but it was more uh, like a parent passing. Yes. Um, my sister and I had a very close relationship with our grandparents. And I think it was because um, our mom had, we have different fathers. And my mom had um, divorced had two divorces, you know, and we were both very, very small. Um, I think my sister was two or three whenever our mom and her dad got divorced. And then um, I was two or three. So, 
But yeah, so I I can understand being very very devastated. Um, yeah. Because we were definitely close to our grandparents, and they kind of were. Um, I don't know. We just had a special relationship with them because I feel like they spent more time and made more of an effort with us because we didn't have fathers and every other grandchild did. Mm. Um, so yeah, I understand that. So I'm going to play a quick clip of Reznor talking to Kurt Loder again. And this time he's talking about his grandmother. I wasn't sure what I wanted to say musically. And so I didn't. I just I thought rather than put a record out that was unfocused mess. I wasn't really ready as a person. I was dealing with um, death of someone very close to me. Your grandmother. Yeah, who raised me. And I didn't deal with it. I just put it off because I, I didn't know how to deal with it. No one ever died around me. That is fucked up when you're not used to... And I'm a little bit in the same position. I weirdly haven't had a lot of death happen to me somehow still at 37. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh God, when it does start happening, I feel like it'll happen fast and in quick succession um, that I will be very ill-equipped to deal as, as he just said, yeah, because I have no experience in it. Yeah. And also for him, it was the death of a parent, which is a different, it's a, it was equivalent to the death of a parent. Yeah. Um, And uh, you know, he talked about how he didn't deal with it. He just tried to pretend that it didn't happen, which a lot of people do. Um, I probably have all kinds of, unprocessed trauma i'm sure that's, a lot of people do and i mean that's grief that's to, denial so it's textbook just to kind of though survive you know you we live in a world where you're not given time to properly grieve yeah. or to take care of yourself after something like that happens because you have to most people have to work yeah work you know is what like, i mean we're sorry that that happened but we don't actually give a shit <laughs> yeah we're sorry your mom died but you have a week to clean out her house and grieve and plan a funeral and get everything together if you get a, a full week you're lucky yeah i mean oh yeah very that's lucky. by the way that's very lucky and also we live in a culture that doesn't talk about death we're not open about death i'm terrified of death i am too but, but yeah we're in an anti-death culture and that Probably being raised in that led to me being terrified of death. Yes. And he said that he was just kind of numb throughout the whole thing. He was, basically it was just, she had a prolonged sickness, right? And so not only was it something, him having to deal with death, but also having to deal with a a long sickness, which can really Mm. take a lot out of you. That's worse, I think. It is. Um, He said, watch somebody die sometime. And it's not the perfect fucking thing you're told it would be. It's terror. And that is hmm. so true. Yeah. About, it's almost been a decade now since my grandmother died, but she had cancer that metastasized and spread very quickly and she didn't want treatment for it. Um, and I mean, she just came to the point where she was debil- debilitated, but it happened so quickly, right? Like, Mm-hmm. One morning she was fine and playing cards with her old lady friends, and the next morning my little cousin found her collapsed on the floor outside her bedroom. You know, yeah. And it is terrifying to watch someone die and the process because you can't stop it. And at this point, she didn't really know, you know, where she was or what was happening. She had really bad like sundowners. Is that what it's called? Y- yes, I believe so. Uh, where she would kind of hallucinate and scream, and you know, we had to. Um, we were lucky to have care, you know, that came in, I think like two or three times a week to help us like change her sheets and stuff, but it is not pleasant to watch or participate in or to help with. It's, 
really horrible. And I don't even know if I processed some of the things that I saw. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's pretty awful and it is traumatizing as well. Um, yeah. And he said uh, when her death hit, it was like a hole I couldn't get out of. It had a profound effect on me. But it also served as a catalyst for me to really sit down and get my shit together. Hmm. So, um, but after everything that happened during this time period, uh, Reznor actually did question about just stopping his career, right? Like just, I don't even oh. know if I want to keep doing this. Why am I doing this? Yeah. You know, I'm sick of the press wars, of the backstabbing. I don't care about chart positions. You know, these are not things that I thought I would have to deal with when I was just a kid playing guitar, basically. Or, you know, kid playing the piano. Sorry, yeah. let me change it. <laughs> um, right. Or when I first started learning guitar or when I recorded my demo. These are not things that you think about. And um, it took him a while to realize that it's music that has always saved him that has always helped him through things. And he said, I forgot the feeling of beauty I can achieve by writing. You lose that in the nonsense of being a rock star. So he just had to kind of, he just had to rediscover that passion for wanting to make music. And instead, you know, all these other things that came along with the celebrity he had suddenly gotten, it was just unappealing to him and he just had to get his head turned back around and just realize that this career really hadn't filled that hole um and that has been an awakening in itself and he told Reagan I'll just kind of quote this he said so it's been an awakening process it's like I've come out of a cloud of depression and aimlessness and once again music has come through to guide me along and save me he said, you know, it really came down to sitting down with myself and remembering at the piano that I love and feel good when I play music and listen to it. That's why I got into it in the first place. With that realization came self-respect again. I remembered that all this shit that comes with it is superfluous and I wasn't going to let it destroy me. I wasn't going to be another tragedy. I feel I have a gift and I want to fucking take advantage of it. Why would I even think of doing something else? Yeah, good point. Like... That would be a huge loss for us if he had just called it quits at that moment. Called that? it quits and was like, I'm just going to score Pixar movies. Yeah. Go in I a mean, totally opposite direction. He could still have that second career but that could come later. Who knows? But yeah, could he could have just been one of those 90s musicians that did an album or two and uh, was then gone. He went through a lot of shit and a lot of hard times, and it took him just being able to sit down and reconnect with music to really get started on the album and remember why he loved doing this in the first place. And it was because he loves music and he loves creating it and he loves participating in it. And he's also managed to keep himself. We'll talk about this maybe more with, with teeth and later albums, but even though he was a big star, he managed to not have that celebrity aspect. Really. I feel like, you know what I mean? Like he was never yeah. in headlines. Never. Well, I mean, we've talked about a bit extent, before but... that if he were just uh, a constant 
paparazzi uh, figure and a, a person who's constantly being seen. Like a Tommy Lee. Yeah, it w- I would have much less respect, I think, for the person. But I feel like he has managed to keep a very nice private life and public life separate, which I think has got to be very, very hard. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that he learned how to, that this was kind of where he began craving normal things and wanting to start a family and, uh, Mm. kind of putting himself in that direction, which would ultimately make him probably the happiest he's been in his life out of this low period. Like these were things that he thought about and eventually was able to achieve and find that happiness. And it kind of started from a very, very low point. Right. But this is kind of a, a heavy one. Yeah. Sorry about so that. So I hope people are liking it. I think people will like hearing the context. People love context. We and we'll get least. more context too. Don't worry. Cause we're yeah. going to talk about fun cultural stuff coming up in later episodes. I just love hearing Reznor make fun of Fred Durst. It's really fun. So <sighs> he loved to do that for a while there. Mm-hmm. No offense to Fred Durst. I'm not trying to all offense to Fred Durst. <laughs> Durst can suck. Fred Durst is a big nailed head. So I just don't want him to be. He, lo- he listens. <laughs> So that sets the stage for the making of the fragile. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at and right now. The fragile has been introduced, and can't wait to dive deeper into it. Oh, we will. Don't worry. It's fragile summer, and summer just began. Fragile <laughs> summer, baby. No, that's good. It's fragile summer, and summer just started. I like that better because of the alliteration. Okay, kind of. It, it's a bit more a bit more alliterative or flows fra- better. It's fragile summer and it's getting hot out there. <laughs> it's I don't know. Fragile summer and there's sand in my underwear. <laughs> yeah, we need good cat like slogans for the for the branding of this series. Like it's about to get a whole lot hotter up in here. It's gonna get a whole lot more fragile. It's gonna get <laughs> It's- it just got fragiler. <laughs> the fra- I think I did some stupid Instagram joke a while back that was like the fragile two, even fragiler. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. Hope he does the fragile two someday. <laughs> All right. So next time. Next time. Next time. Unnailed. Unnailed. Halo thirteen. We're doing the Halo 13, finally. Yeah. Back to Halos. I know some people will be happy. It's supposed to be a Halo podcast. Yeah. And in between this episode and that episode, we'll have a bonus app. Yeah. What's it about? I don't know. Should we do Should we do sequencing the Fragile yeah, we'll, next? Yeah, we'll probably talk about the sequencing of the Fragile, which is a whole mm-hmm. big ordeal, and there's a cool essay about it. Either found... that or Nothing Studios, which, by the way, is also something that Reznor was working on, was building this insane yeah. uh, recording turning studio. A, turning a funeral home into a studio. Yeah. So we'll talk about a little bit of bonus up on that. So it's either going to be Nothing Studios or sequencing the Fragile. Which yeah. But if you want bonus episodes, you got to... Be on the Patreon. How do they do that, Blake? Patreon.com slash NailedPod. And you can also get there by going to NailedPod.com, which has links to all of our stuff, including the uh, recently added merch store. <laughs> uh, there's cool cool merch there, notably shirts and 
I'm wearing merch right now. Oh, they're not that that merch is not available. It's part of the fall line. Yeah, so Jess <laughs> Jess is wearing an early prototype for stuff we'll have in the fall, but we've got to worry about the summer collection. Mm-hmm. By the time you hear this, summer collection may or may not be up there. Anyway, check that out, please. Sorry, Oscar's excited about the summer collection and wants to tell you all how excited he is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Patreon gets you bonus episodes. It gets you Discord access to the private Discord for Nailed fans. And also, by the time you're hearing this, I will have hopefully um, finished the sequencing of our Fragile Summer playlist. So a while ago, we Mm -hmm. asked in Discord... We asked on our Instagram, hey, what are your favorite sad summer songs, right, that are not Nine Inch Nails? <laughs> right. You can't tell us. It has to be sad, but it also has to Thing. have, okay, it has to be sad, but it also has to have summer vibes, Things right? that can be called fragile, but also summery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For example, Lana Del Rey's Summertime Sadness, perfect Sad summer song. They're in the title, people. Yep. So I have taken all those tracks and some tracks that Blake and I have selected and added. And there is a playlist on Spotify. Just look for Nailed Presents Fragile Summer and you will find it. And what I have done is I have broken up the fragile and put these fragile songs between them that you all suggested and tried to sequence them in a way that made sense. But you don't have to listen to them in order, just hit shuffle. So there you go. That's right. But you can by the time you hear this. And hopefully the order makes sense and hopefully you won't hate me for putting so much new order on there, but whatever. (laughs) She can't help herself, folks. Mm. Sometimes it just flows so perfectly into a new order song that it's a wonderful thing. Okay. Anyway, Blake. Yes. Is there anything else we want to talk about? Yeah, I was looking at Patreon because I was going to give... Patron shout-outs ah, to a few new people. One of my favorite parts of the episode. Recent patron shout-outs. Shout-out to Jamie M. Hey, Jamie M. And shout-out to Nicolette. Nicolette. Cool name. Uh-huh. See you in the Discord, hopefully. And if you don't know how to get there, hit me up on social media. Uh, at NailedPod on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, nailedpod at gmail.com if you just want to email the old-fashioned way or find us in the nailed chat room on aol if you want to sue us for (laughs) stealing your content maybe we did maybe we did steal your content sorry pod like a whole stole your whole premise (laughs) all right let's go celebrate uh, kicking off fragile summer with some fragile pizza and the watching of Return of the Living Dead, the annual thing that Jessica makes me do every July third, baby. She's got her, she's got her shirt on right now and everything. Mm-hmm. I do. I'm ready. It's the best day of the year. Let's go eat our pizza and watch the Return of the Living Dead. Let's fucking go. All right. Thanks so much for uh, continuing to listen to Nailed. Sorry about the big break in episodes while we prepared this. Mostly Jessica did all the work. Thank you, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank, thank you, Tyler Snell, for new art. If you're enjoying the new Fragile-themed art, it's the amazing work of Tyler Snell. Thank you, Heather, for video editing. Thank you, me, for music making. 
And that's Thank you, it. Oscar, for being cute. Thank you. I almost forgot to thank Oscar. <laughs> that's it for us this time. So we'll see you next time on Nailed. Didn't that make you feel better? <laughs> <laughs>